Welcome to the Raleigh Bitcoin meetup. We are here in the grocery store again. Um, we're at the end of aisle four, sort of upstairs. And the question we're starting with today is, uh, if Bitcoin was a food for sale in this grocery store, what item would it be? I immediately go to potato because of its versatility. <laughs> but is it scarce enough? Are potatoes scarce enough? People have run out of potatoes before. It was problematic. <laughs> too soon on the potato famine. <laughs> you know, I thought this question was going to be proposed as a, if Bitcoin was a food, what food would it be? And But if we're limiting to this grocery store, I have to reassess my position. Because I was going to say, we can open it up. I want to yeah. say a Taco Bell Jalupa, but like the, <laughs> the one that you eat at like 3 a.m. and you're barefoot and you have to run a mile back to the house to get away from your crazy girlfriend. <laughs> But then when you get inside the house, you really have to shit really bad because it's that awesome. It's an experience from top to bottom. Like when you start and when you, when you, when you go get back to the house, everything about it is just this amazing opportunity to um, just to see what life's really about and how people really operate in, in, in what they do in a day. Taco Bell. I think it's just the answer. It's volatile and it's always going to be an interesting experience. Every time. Here's what I don't like about that. Everything about at Taco Bell is the same items repackaged slightly different. And I feel Bitcoin is more original than that. It's not just a taco with a, or with a soft shell and sour cream. Like these very slight variations of things that came before it. Um, I do like the potato famine idea because in the middle of a bear market, you're just there starving with your last potato, thinking, should I eat this potato? <laughs> it's not going to be nutritious at these prices. I think I, say, I should just keep starving. <laughs> I say steak. It's it's old. It's trusted. It's not going anywhere. Like It's it's the foundation of any sort of sustainable like nutrition. I, I think it's I think it's more. I think it's more foundational, like like the honey badger of of foods, something that's that's strong and lasting and not going anywhere. I could I could buy into that because based on the world population growth, I don't think there's going to be enough livestock to feed the rest of the world there in a hundred years. You know yeah. the depreciation of it, so scarce. Exactly. I just think root vegetables. I think mining for some reason, if that if those that connection makes sense. Um, oh, mining for the taters? Yeah. <laughs> I mine potatoes for a living. There was some uh, kale for sale down there that I got. And kale's kind of like the new lettuce. Yeah, just a superfood. Bitcoin's like the new money. I don't know. Kale's like a BSV, it seems to me. That's the new Is lettuce, it? right? <laughs> it's, it's also poisonous. Like, Kale's there's so many take over the incorrect... whole salad. It can't. You eat kale incorrectly somehow, despite what? it just being a leafy vegetable. What do you mean incorrectly? Like d- dangerously? Yeah. Not that I know of. Tell us more. <sighs> Vegetarians have such irritable bowels. Like they're always saying, like, <laughs> soak these almonds before you eat them. Things like that. <laughs> always eat almonds before you eat your kale. Bitcoin's like the opposite of irritable bowel. Phytotoxins? Could that be something kale has? <laughs> Look, I think I think the better, uh, the best analogy besides the Taco Bell Jalupa is the the, the truffle. You know, oh, you I you want to go hunt for something. You want to work for your food. You got to get you a truffle pig or a truffle dog to go and find the mushrooms in the woods. The only I don't think I know what that is. So so uh, really rare mushroom. 
Oh. That you uh, that they train pigs to go into the into the woods to find or do- or certain kinds of dogs that it, have good it, sniffers. It's savory to an extreme. If you've had truffle oil, or anything, it's so good. Rare, hard to find. Truffle hard, salt, it highly is, recommend. It is literally what Bitcoin is, and it's a fungus. And it's even got a specialized uh, market for finding it. Exactly, and it requires specialty equipment. You know, you can't just go get your regular pig. You got to get your truffle pig. I think truffle. <laughs> I think this is going to I mean truffles have a finiteness to them. I don't think you can really. It's very hard if you want to like try to grow them. Oh, you can't grow them. Yeah, yeah, um, I, in captivity. Yeah, well, can uh, mushrooms captive? I. They can't be farmed. Yeah. I like that because you tell me first, oh, there's just truffles and it's a fungus. Initially, I'm like, uh, I don't know about how I feel about that. It's food. Kind of like Bitcoin. Oh, Bitcoin's this new kind of money. Like, eh, I don't know about this digital money. So I was a little skeptical at first, but then it's really just gold. So truffles are like $2,000. Like, they are very expensive just to, to let Wait, that what? out there. Yeah, oh, they, yeah. Is that a real like number? Per pound, yeah. What are, are we you, doing yeah, now? I'll get, you, I'll get you the current going market rate for <laughs> a truffle. A pound of truffles. I'm about to learn how to. Can you not farm it? Yeah, exactly. So uh, no, that's the whole point is that they can't be grown in captivity, right? Yeah, but I'm gonna figure that out. (laughs) So, but but maybe this is good analogy because it's like someone saying like I'm gonna figure out how to mine more Bitcoin, and it just can't be done. Mushrooms are crazy, by the way. I was dating a chick a while ago that was all into these mushrooms, and she thought that. Mushrooms grew in people's yards depending on what was going on inside the house, like the kind of re- relationships, dynamics that were Fairy happening. Fairy rings. That's a real thing, dude. I'm just Wait, like, <laughs> <laughs> Jerome, why would you say that? I th- yeah, I think... Yeah, I'm going to go with mushrooms. They have uh, special properties. Yeah, uh, $2,500 a pound currently. Yeah. Good lord. Yeah, I think there are. I some thought that was an exaggeration. It was an no, undershoot. That's, that's what it goes for. Like you can, they only grow rare places. I think there's like one place in North Carolina they grow, and ours aren't the particularly valuable kind. But like in Italy, places where they're really sought after, it's crazy, and people will go onto other people's land and steal them because it's so valuable. Yeah, now that we've brought up mushrooms, it's like we just need Brandon Quidham here to like go through his whole series about how like bitcoin is definitely a mushroom but yeah that's funny i didn't even think about the fact that it, mushrooms are our food is that more <laughs> of the hallucinogenic uh, quality of, of bitcoin uh, no and just the just the idea that the, the mushroom itself is decentralized like the way it reacts and um evolves to uh you know stimulus in its environment is on a in a decentralized manner and you know it's like one of those things like the what is it, the oldest living organism that they think in existence is uh, a mycelium mushroom mm-hmm. network. And it's supposedly like thousands and thousands of years old by their estimate. Like, I can't, I can't remember exactly the details, but yeah. So Bitcoin is a digital mushroom. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I do think I do think the hallucinogenic, uh, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but there's something about Bitcoin that's transformative. I think... Uh, I don't know if it's the the death of your previous self, like a, a crazy trip or not, but uh, maybe. And do you think you, we have a good idea of what Bitcoin is going to transform our society into? Or do you think we're just swallowing the pill right now? Like we're just laying out the line, we're about to snort it, and we have no idea. what. I mean, I'm not, I don't snort mushrooms. I mean, maybe I'd try it, yeah. but... 
Do you think like we're just? <laughs> you think we're just? We're just about to open up a can and see where oh, that can that? goes. <laughs> you were just practicing this Roman mystery religion, and we don't know where it's going to take us next. You know, a good example of what they used to do is the Black Panther movie. Did everyone see that? Yes. Do you remember when he's like tripping and stuff? So that was actually oh, yeah. based on history is that the Roman emperors would always do this before they took the ram. And so you kind of, there's this ritualized process where you would like trip balls and they not that much information about it, but afterwards it would kind of like you were a new person and ready to lead. Yeah. I think if we, uh, I think if we t- take a pretty solid step back, like you can at least kind of see the trend like of what's happening because there's huge mega political dynamics changing like all over the world um and clearly this has been started with the information age and i think bitcoin is a catalyst to double down on what we have seen i think it's going to accelerate it in probably a pretty spectacular fashion as far as what it's going to do i think we're i think we're laying out the line and snorting it right now and we really do not know where we are headed you know, maybe someone told us what the trip was going to be like, but it's it's going to be crazy. I think I think we're going to see a, just an enormous shift in the world in the, in the next two decades. Yeah, saying the information age is important to remember because we have a problem with information right now. We're overwhelmed with it, and we can't tell what is true. And Bitcoin is a finite way of telling if something is true, and it's very limited, but it is a truth in the information in an age of misinformation and confusion. The world definitely needs a trusted entity, and those are only decreasing by the day. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, imagine growing up in, in this day and age as a kid and not feeling like you can... It would be interesting to know if they feel like they can trust anything, or but then waking up and realizing that they can't. So a truth machine of sorts would be definitely be valuable. That's definitely one of my major attractions to Bitcoin. It's I'm becoming less and less sure of anything and Bitcoin's it's like a use of the word objectivity. It's like the closest, it's like the only thing that I can have in my world that I can say is objective information. Uh because it's absolutely the same on everyone that runs the node and that's I don't know. It's it's weird. It's so simple. I think the sort of consensus that Bitcoin is based around is as close you, as you can get to objectivity as we know it. That is, I don't know if anyone disagrees with that, but as far as economic, some sort of economic value, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree there. Well, you still just achieve consensus in anything. Like you achieve consensus in the scientific community. But even that has issues. Like the most you could get would be a, a mathematically provable consensus by computers. So there's just this is as as actually objective as you can get because there's no humans involved. The answer everyone can verify the answer independently. Like it's kind of the peak of scientific objectivity, and scientific objectivity has its problems. This is kind of it's, it's kind of sad that the longest chain is ultimately what the peak of objectivity looks like. Is that you have all this work behind <laughs> the it? The peak of objectivity is five transactions per second. That's yeah. it. That's all we got. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's kind of cool in a way. It is kind of cool. It's. But it yeah. It it makes it for a very confusing world where everyone's living in their own reality, which is coming, 
but it will be a it will be a rough transition. Yeah, I think that's really that's where we are right now, mm. um, and we're just kind of accelerating toward it. Like like we we constantly have this um, impression that we're in the the age of you know fake news or whatever, like where nobody knows what's true. But I think that's kind of a a, a misdefining of where we actually are is that I think we're really in the age of disillusionment hmm. rather than the age of untruth. It's that we've always believed bullshit, but we've been in consensus about it. Yes. And now we're finding out that it's all bullshit. Hmm. And because the consensus is lost, we feel confused. We feel like there is no truth. But there wasn't. We were just very comfortably ignorant in not knowing anything. Hmm. Now we've been drowned in an explosion of variables in information. None of it lines up with one solid narrative. And we're, we're losing our way. We're trying to figure out what do we grasp onto, what do we let go, which way do we head. Like, like everything seems to be in disarray as we start to piece little bits of this thing together. And that's why I think something like Bitcoin as, as a totem for something that you can rely on and as a foundation for a new economy that has a completely set of a completely new set of deduced from the couple of things that we can know rules will the enti that entire economy the entire ecosystem that will stem from that has a couple of they, they really are memes now but they are kind of inherent truths to this new world that are easy to lean on that don't require trusting a lot of people and and I think that will be seen I, I know personally for me it was a it felt like a huge relief that there was this thing that I could lean on a little bit and just kind of take all the weight of the confusion off of me um, and I think that will continue to be the case that there is this totem that now suddenly we can lean on when we feel like there's no clear direction or there's no clear truth you leaning on those mushrooms? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm going to take a shot at putting this objectivity thing into words. So we all have our own subjective experiences of reality, and it's sometimes tough to communicate and agree on those experiences between one another. So the analogy here would be Bitcoin nodes receive transactions in different orders. And the big problem is how do we decide the one order of transactions that everyone has to agree upon to make sure that nobody double spends? And so the, this big like objectivity solution of Bitcoin is the process of taking one person's experience of the order of transactions and everyone agreeing on that and then everyone continuing to perceive their own experience and then like one random person of all of us gets their experience stamped into the blockchain because it doesn't really matter whose order of transactions gets stamped in there as long as it's the same for everyone. I just, I, I just, uh, I don't know. What do you guys, is that a good analogy? Yeah, I, I like that there's, we're all going to live in our own realities and we can't even tell if our own realities are real or not. We're just doing it. But then you have to return to the settlement layer of Bitcoin and find out was that business idea a good idea or not? You know, was 
was my work valuable that I've been doing or not? That, that you need some way to tell from society at large that you deserve a piece of the resources fairly based on your actual productivity and your contributions. And I think Bitcoin is, is going to move us in that direction. I think just the, the concept of reemerging sound money, hmm. um, which obviously is the role that Bitcoin is playing here in the analogy, um, is, is what kind of provides that where we've lost it in the, the age of price controls on time and manipulated money. Uh, so the wealthy are not wealthy because they're the most productive. The poor are not necessarily poor because they're the least productive. Um, uh, there, there has been a divergence and some degree of unfairness that most people can't point to. They, they can't clearly define where or how it was lost. Um, but it was lost, um, and uh, Bitcoin brings that back. But I love the idea of like that being the one objective thing in the sense that like everyone will have their own perspective and view of what's going on in the Bitcoin ecosystem and in in the uh, in the Bitcoin network. All the nodes will have their own individual view. But the idea is that because we let go of all the subjective valuations of those things and we adhere to a very specific set of sort of lowest common denominator definitive rules, what we can conclude from all of our individual and differing experiences, we pull from it the same core truth, which we all settle on and extend forward into the future. Um, so it's a... It's a really interesting, really interesting development in the idea of trying to create some degree of objective cooperation do, between do, subjective entities. Do you think the value of work will become more objective if we have a objectively uh, sound money? So that right now, if I do the exact same service industry work in the finance industry, I'm going to be paid more for doing that work if I live in the U.S., than if I work for the same company, but I work in India. The world got flat, but the prices were arbitrarily fixed and did yeah. not flatten out. Are, do you think this Bitcoin is going to help it so that like everyone's using the same currency, work is work everywhere? To a degree, yeah. It, it will essentially be, like I feel like what that is, is jurisdictional and policy arbitrage. Hmm. Um, is that you have a situation where the amount of capital available to one one economy is not the same as the capital available to another economy. And the information age is already is already filling that gap. That's that's why you can hire somebody from India now, even though it's at a much lower wage. But what is that doing? It's it's arbitraging capital. It's moving capital from the 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 overpriced product or the overpriced service to the underpriced service and into the underpriced economy. Um, and as a tool like Bitcoin and um, the, the liberating power of just being able to communicate regardless of whether your government explicitly says you can or not um, and do business across their borders um, will continue to close that gap and make the it will lessen or dampen the effects of the government policy on limiting and preventing growth of capital within those economies. So essentially the jurisdictions start to crumble or become weaker, and in doing so, the growth of the economy no longer gives that giant giant spread between the two, 
the two different locations or you know geographic locations. This seems like a social justice warrior issue. Do you think people would get on board this pitch for Bitcoin that like you really want to see somebody who gets paid ten cents to the dollar? It's the other. It's your colleague who you talk through instant messenger to in India. <laughs> that person gets ten cents to the dollar because you have a culture that says that's fine, that you have accepted it, you know, and you've made some unfortunate assumptions about other cultures that have allowed you to get away with this for so long. You mean the social justice warrior thing about like, oh, it's terrible that people are willing to work for such small wages? No, that that woman get paid like so many cents on the dollar. Oh, okay. And we, it periodically gets debunked or and it's questionable and it tends to be overstated. But this is unquestionable. It's unquestionable that a person's work is not equal across countries and it's the same work and it might even be the same over overlying entity. I yeah, mean, that, that's colonialism in practice. You know, that's what what actual bigotry looks like is the work of another country is not good as American work. Yeah. I, I, th I think, um, getting back to your original question mm. or, um, David's original question, uh, I don't think you're going to find that objectivity in terms of, you know, uh, how much does this technical report cost? And it should cost like roughly the same for everyone who's willing to do it. I don't think we're ever going to get to that kind of objectivity because that goes back to the Austrian thing of, you know, for some people, just some amount of effort is just worth something completely different for whatever reason, you know, like whatever particular situation they're in, there's just always going to be like bidding like this is what i'll do that work for so i don't think i mean you can define an average of all of the people that are doing similar tasks and say that that average is the objective cost for that but i, I think the idea of that there will be like an objective price for some work that needs to be done um i don't think that is or like should ever really happen but maybe that wasn't your your original question but I think there's always going to be a huge variety of competing valuations for the cost of a certain type of labor. But I think there are there is a, a situation that will go away where it is literally the exact same work. You're sitting in identical offices and Yeah, but one person has a family and another person doesn't, you know. You know, one one person's time is is worth more than somebody else's. Like it, 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 you can't say it's the work itself. It's always the the situation that the person is in that's bidding for the work i think yeah I mean, not every so what's happening hey what's up jimmy <laughs> i mean the question is is the work being done in, in these other countries actually different work or is it the same work like because well, here, let me give an example with lap dances <laughs> Two lap dances can be exactly the same materially, but the woman giving the lap dance creates a mass variance in the price. Did you just say mass variance intentionally? No. That's the best pun of the <laughs> Wait, what do you say? What variance? Mass variance. You know, the, the actual lap the work being done, the lap dance itself, the same lap dance. Exactly the same. But... One, you're paying a premium for it. One, you might even be like, you know what? You look, that tooth is a little janky. I'm going to, I need a discount for the same work. <laughs> and I don't think that in the, in professional work, the type of work that's done in offices, that variance is really there. It's more of like, 
an antiquated holdover. Well, the the difference in my estimation is just supply and demand. Is that you know if like like in our economy, like we we have so much capital to make use of that it's not difficult to find a position somewhere that can make you in, like you know 300 times more productive than you would be sitting at home like with the tin machines and the computer and the software and the platform and all the stuff that the employer just sits in front of you and tells you to use um whereas in uh an economy like india something something that's still growing is all that capital is not available to them so when when they're lining up for the like this they always talk about like oh apple only pays you know two dollars an hour or something you know crazy but then what you don't see is the fact that they literally had like 20,000 people sign up for, like apply to the job because it's six times what the local wage is and when you have that many people i mean think about the amount of capital just to go through that many applications like you you can't just enter into an economy that is at you know the 1910s worth of capital and manufacturing and networks and communication like like infrastructure and then pay $60,000 a year wage and think that it's not going to just throw things into chaos maybe even those people's lives particularly if you're talking about a jurisdiction um there was actually uh somebody um who uh hired a, a virtual assistant for uh their podcast and they they do like a series on how to run a podcast and they said they said they said uh be careful about what you agree to pay somebody in india and remember that they're having to report this online and that if you like i he said like i literally like was arguing with somebody that i had been using for like a year and a half i was like why don't you want me to increase your pay like i you're like you're, you don't understand like you're worth like forty thousand dollars to me and you're only asking me to pay you twelve thousand dollars like why i don't i don't understand like i'm trying to explain that that's the normal wage here and they said like i will get utterly like i i will be at huge risk for the police in my area for the my equivalent of the irs please god don't pay me that much money like there will be a target on my back in a week um and and he said so like i basically kept doing that and i've tried to you know give little tips and you know help out where I can, but they literally insist that I don't pay them what I think is a fair wage. Um, so I think there's a lot of other dynamics outside of the fact of just, like, Americans don't want to pay them enough. Like, if if you're offering in jurisdiction A $10,000 and nobody applies, well, then you bump it up to $20,000. But if you offer in jurisdiction B $10,000 and 6,000 people apply, what do you do? You the wage is ten thousand dollars, you know. But um, how else am I going to signal that I am a fair person because I'm complaining about people not getting paid enough? I need to have a way to tell the world how fair I am, you know. Well, so th this I is an unfair world. The, the state has failed this person that they can't yes. even accept property without yeah. being killed. They're afraid and. They're yeah, and it's probably I don't know enough about India to really get into them specifically, but they have a caste system where it maybe it's like if you're in this caste and you get a certain amount of money, people are just going to really go after you. Like yeah. it's just unforgivable for this caste to move up in the world. Yeah, you have to wait till the next life to move up into the next caste. You can't 
you can't do it in one life or you'll really screw up the system. It's a convenient ideology for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's generally true um, as far as you know, corporations do their profit-seeking entities. So the way that they hold profits up is to keep costs down, which is why they choose to move supply chains to other parts of the world because it's more advantageous. The thing that will eventually happen over time, and you're actually seeing it in real time in China, is the fact that everybody's manufacturing capacity has moved to China. It's actually pushing wages up to the point where it's now becoming, it's no longer a comparative advantage to have certain supply chains in China. And then you add on you know, the, the, the tariffs and just the geopolitical situations between the U.S. and China, it the cost rises to a point where they have to move to another place. And then eventually over time, those wages rise up as well. Because China is in a, in a transition moment, and so is India, where they are, they're developing the other broader services that developed nations already have. So whether it's developing um, capital markets increasing the amount of capital in those markets, strengthening those institutions and regulatory institutions that kind of govern, you know, the, the flow of capital within that nation, that's all taking place. So you should see within, I, I, I think if you look maybe in another 30 years, um, China, I think China right now, their, way, their the median wage is somewhere in a middle country like I think Turkey or something to that effect, where it's like fifteen thousand dollars per capita. They say within thirty years, it's supposed to be, you know, one of the it, it would be the equivalent of a poor nation in the eurozone, it's like a Hungary or any one of those countries. So it does happen over time, where the companies have this ability to offsource those um, those costs to other countries and lower their costs, which makes goods cheaper. Um, and But over time, you should see that advantage disappear because there's only so many places where you can shift and take advantage of the low price of labor in this world before everybody's caught up and everybody's developed and everybody's operating at a much higher efficiency, similar to what the developed nations are currently operating at. Do you think the <clears throat> multiple currencies isn't really affecting that much, or do you think that is affecting it? So it's, it becomes much harder to pay someone more just because they're in America when you're sending 0.1 Bitcoin here or 0.8 Bitcoin, 0.08 Bitcoin over here. Because at that point, it's just obvious. So, you, so are you asking, as is the currency what's keeping the wages down? Or, or is... If you had a single currency, would the equal, would everything even out faster? No. Oh. I, yeah. No. I, I started off thinking yeah. yes, but now after yeah. talking about this, I think no. I don't think Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin standard would really do much to change that dynamic. Bitcoin does not fix this. Bitcoin does not. Fix, maybe in the long run. Okay. I disagree only to the speed. Like, like, like you were saying is. Like, it's, it's a maturation process, so it takes a really long time. You know, Apple goes over there and builds a factory, and they get, you know, one-eighth of the salaries, and then, like, Google's like, oh, God, we got to do this, too, and then they go over and build a factory, and suddenly you have, you know, a hundred companies that are extending, building, uh, manufacturing, and infrastructure in this economy that is explicitly dirt cheap because none of that was there before. So now all of it's more productive. 
the 10,000 people that applied to Apple have, has dropped to 500 because now they can apply to Google and they can apply to Corning. They can apply to now the 100 other companies that chased them over there to get the cheap wage, the cheap wages. But there is a huge friction of having to translate from currency to currency that's taking a 10% cut, taking a 20% cut, delaying things for two, three days when they shouldn't have to. So in the same sense that if there was, if they built twice the size of the plant the first time they went over there, like I think Bitcoin, the, the lack of, being lo- of value being lost in translation actually would speed up that process and uh, accelerate it in the most critical points at which it needs to be like accelerated. Um, so not, not no fix it, but speed it up. Yes. I think so. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. And I think that's true as far as transaction costs, but we have to look at it relatively. What would cause a country to rise in standard of living? Is it the currency or is it the development of human capital development of just capital in general wanting to be there and not leave or the regulatory institutions and the government institutions. Once you fix those things, um, currency will be good <clears throat> to decline the transac- transaction costs between the different countries, um, but it's really structural issues that they have to fix first and foremost. And even today, um, if you look at from trade volume to where the savings are being put or where uh, how to raise capital in the markets, it's overwhelmingly in the U.S. dollar. Like it's to a point where um, like trade volume globally, about 80% to 90% of trades are settled in the U.S. dollar. That's not an accident. That's because that's the currency in which everybody has agreed has, you know, relative to every other currency out there, is stable. The government is stable. The economy is the strongest. It has a powerful military. So all those different characteristics lead everybody to say, well, instead of I, my, I use currency one, two, three, four, five, why don't we all just you know, keep dollars on reserve and we'll just price everything in dollars? And so, that's at, so you kind of already have a sense of that globally. Okay, yeah. um, it, it, it's, it's, it's massive just how much the dollar is involved in everything. It's mm-hmm. the, it is the reason why the United States has so much power. Um, so you do have that, and it's much more structural issues that developing nations need to overcome and just to mature to a level of the United States or to a Western Europe. Does anybody want a beer or something to drink? I'm going to go grab something. Just curious. Yeah, where are they at? Sure. Uh, right in the front there. So I, I think we might be um, – suffering from a lack of child labor Um, yeah just all over the world i think like six-year-olds just have it way too easy (laughs) you don't think we have a supply side problem around the world that we have too many workers and that's why they have bad wages oh yeah women need to stop working immediately (laughs) yeah just like cut that supply of labor in half and increase the six-year-olds but only the six-year-old boys I am think I, am I gonna have to cut this out? <laughs> you might have to. Um, I think if you look at the labor market globally, you kind of have to. You can't really look at it as a single entity or like a homogenous entity, because I think for lower skilled labor, yes, I think you're correct that there is a massive amount of 
just supply relative to the demand out there. But if you look at higher skill labor, like in like finance, law, you know, consulting, those are actually in shortage supply. Um, and that's part of the reason why those professions could command such high salaries is because you have to go through grade school, pass all your tests, go to college, pass all your tests, get an internship at the at that particular industry, um, and then most likely go back and get your MBA or some sort of advanced degree. Like the amount of people globally that sucks, <laughs> but the amount of people that can if you had a get a room full of 100 people and you said, okay, how many people, you know, on the planet has a college degree? It probably come out in that room of 100, about seven. <clears throat> so then you do the math when you start talking about PhDs and MBAs and master's degrees, probably drops closer to 1% or one person in that room. So you have 99 people who are low to mid-skill. They don't have a college education. Then you have these you know, let's say 10 people in the room who are highly skilled, but the jobs that are, the newer jobs that are being created requires you to have that skill that only 10% of the population has. So that's the reason why you're able to see programmers get paid ridiculous sums of money. Even look at it, people who, who develop for these crypto projects or, you know, Bitcoin developers, they're able to command so much money for their services because how many people out there exist that can do what they do so i agree with that completely i think that kind of sitting here thinking about it and listening to this conversation for a few minutes and wrapping my head around just call it the india problem for a second and i think it's it's quite prevalent there you post a job on freelancer.com you will have a baker's dozen of indians applying to do the job it's just the reality of it there is a much there is a massive population of people that are literate. There is a giant population of people that have college, uh, high school degrees, um, diplomas, whatever you guys call them here. And then people going to college. There's just an army of people that are willing to, and have access to a computer or could work from an internet cafe. So when you post a job online um, and say, hey, I want to pay someone $1,000 a month who has a PhD in computer science you have 50 people applying for it and they have amazing portfolios that have done it. And if there, if you went to the same post, that same job in a tiny little town where the internet didn't exist, let's call that town. I don't know. Uh, Creedmoor, North Carolina. You're going to have one dude who's capable of doing that job. I think it's nothing more than just supply and demand and there is a surplus of people. And until you're playing Civilizations 4 and Gandhi comes and just destroys everyone, um, you're going to be able to get really cheap labor. I think that's just that's just what it comes down to, is really cheap labor because there's just a surplus of people that are qualified. Hmm. And, and the internet has acted as a, a board to provide access uh, a you, you could get access to those people to do the job that they need to do online or whether it's in Sri Lanka or Pakistan or India or China or anywhere, the internet is a leveling playing field for that. So it's actually the entire world is the supply of people that could perform that job that are qualified. You're not just dealing with Creedmoor, North Carolina anymore. Yeah, I mean, once you do VR and augmented reality, 
like wouldn't that close the wage gap between these countries really fast? Like your ability. No, I think that's just going to create a greater discrepancy. I think it's the. I'm saying the opposite of what you're saying. Simply because the more people that can compete for the job that are qualified, the the lower the price is going to go. You need scarcity in workers, and that's going to drive price up. I I guess I'm not concerned about driving price up or down. It's just the two countries equal. But the more people that can apply, but, the lower the price is going to go. So think of it. Think of it this way. Um, Compare the demand. Com- compare the demand and the amount of workers that are f- farmers or just simple, you know, assembly line manufacturers globally, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You would you say in general people who can just do you know simple basic task of put this onto this widget and screw this here? There's a high proportion of those people than lawyers or investment bankers or consultants. Mm-hmm. The United States and just general Western European countries has a much higher proportion of those type of workers relative to the entire to, to the rest of the world. This is really interesting what you when you say that because that is true. But even more important is that each of those professions—the lawyer, the finance—these um, are country-specific professions. You are only certified to practice in one place. You have over-specialized. You can't now go around the world. Like, someone in India is not going to be able to give legal advice to people in America. Uh, the state has forced you to be a well-paid professional in one area only. So, in, in, in accounting, yes, because you do have generalized accounting standards that are being used globally. And a lot of companies in India or other countries use U.S. accounting standards if they so choose to want to raise capital in the United States. I mean, what if, if all the investors or most of the investors are in, you know, Western Europe or U.S. and mostly in U.S., um, how, how you're going to tailor-made your package or your regulations to conform to the international standards, which are closely tied to the standards that are used in the United States. So you're kind of already kind of merging in that sense, that those con- that those people of those nations have to learn this particular way of doing things because this is where all the capital is. I think it's interesting where we'll get a situation maybe a hundred years from now where a lot of the world has developed um, and capital itself has developed in that country to a certain point um, where what is the standard that we are going to use. Most likely, it's still going to be the standard that the U.S., um, has used because of legacy. It's kind of like a language. Um, people use English because everybody else, you know, uses English in the business world. If Mandarin was a language, and everybody would use language, uh, use Mandarin. So it's kind of that. So I, I like where you are going with that, and I think there is a uh, a way that I can build on top of that for a moment. Um, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. Okay, good point, Jimmy. Um, as a Jerome. Um, <laughs> I am I'm of the opinion that Dave may be missing something. Okay, what's going on? So let's just pick three professions for a moment. So let's pick um, a doctor. Let's pick a carpenter that that that's like like an indoor doing crown molding carpenter. Um, so somewhat specialized, but still uh, blue collar, and then a farmhand with no specialized knowledge other than a hard back and 
and sturdy feet. I think that's what you need. As you can see, glove full of Vaseline here has never done a hard day of hard work in his life. Um, I, I think the hypothesis that we're operating on is that the currency doesn't matter. I think the hypothesis we're operating from is that the more people that are capable of performing the job, the lower the wage is. And so by having a uh, having an internet connection, having access to the job posting, having access to the ability to perform the job pursuant to the criteria of the posting, for example, freelancer, means that the wages are going to be lower. Everyone, unless you are an unable, you wheelchair-bound, unable to work, is capable of being a farmhand. It, it, that's just nuts and bolts. Unless you have, are able to meet some other qualification, you could do that job. But there's some farmers here that aren't going to be happy to hear that. But yeah, but there are. But there are also people that have greater skills, that have different skill sets that are more specialized in an area like carpentry that are really good at that and that have spent the time. And is this uh, issue of marginal utility as well, that they have specialized in something that causes them to be able to command a higher price for that specific task. And then even greater with, I think we said doctors, where that is even more hyper-specialized, where there is um, more time invested. And as a result, they get to command these outrageous and ridiculous prices. But you, you, if you get your uh, medical degree in India, you can't come and practice medicine in the United States. You're going to yeah, become. You, can. you can. You just have to pass like the board, whatever yeah, the really? test. Yeah. yeah. No, you. But it's not. It's not easy. I mean, my sister got her medical degree in Australia, and because of that, she gets to practice in like UK territories. Yeah. But if she was going to try to practice medicine in the US, she would basically have to go do medical school. Well, the again. infrastructure to allow an Australian doctor to operate upside down. In most ORs, that's right. Is, is yeah. too expensive. Yeah, that, that's that's mainly the reason. Yeah, because you have it with uh, Cuban doctors. Cuban doctors are known are known to be really good across the globe, comparatively. Um, and a lot of them who study in Cuba can just come to the U.S., pass the you know medical board exam, and now they're licensed doctors in the United States. In fact, one of the doctors that I used to go to um, came directly from Cuba. Um, is, was working at UNC's, you know, hospital. So it is possible. You just have to pass the test. Now, that gets into the other question of, well, we don't know if maybe certain schools in China or, or another country, are they preparing them as well? Well, that's a different, you know, question altogether. But if they are ad adherent to a certain standard, which is, let's say, the standard of, you know, what doctors have to pass through in the United States, then yes, even if they get their degree, their, doc their, their doctorate degree in another country, as long as they were teaching to the curriculum to pass that exam and they pass the exam in the U.S., they're free to practice medicine here. I guess the story I've always heard, and maybe it's not true, is that people from advanced come here with advanced degrees and have to become taxi drivers. Yeah, I've heard that too. But I don't know if it's true or not. I've just assumed it was true. It made sense to me. That also could be a good case of confirmation bias where, you know, I, I got into a, a taxi in New York and a guy started screaming at me about me being a Jesuit. I'm not a Jesuit, <laughs> but like, I mean, that really sticks out of my mind that all taxi drivers hate Jesuits. Hmm. And, it and it depends <laughs> on <your> story. <laughs> and, and it depends on what the Ph.D. is. in. I mean, if it's an art. If there's a high demand for art degrees, 
in that field, then they should be able to command a higher salary. But if this person had a PhD in engineering and they wanted to move into finance, they would have no trouble doing that whatsoever outside of just learning basic finance because now finance is pretty much just mathematics. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it, it, is, it can be transferable. It's just going to depend on the situation. That guy also could be a, like a doctor in phrenology. You know, like he studied the shape of the human brain and the, the skull, and that's not really a thing that people mm-hmm. care about anymore. Yeah, or pay attention to. Well, one of the things I think we're neglecting here is that we're just talking about a job that needs to be done. But I often think about jobs that are just created to do bureaucratic bullshit, like the, for example, getting like podcast uh, like, uploader. No, dude, that's real. Oh, People okay. need that. That is real work. <laughs> that's, that's, real that's organic. Yeah, the whole no, world falls apart if no I'm, one uploads. I'm talking podcasts. about like, okay, I need all of these forms filled out. Because some, you know, PhD lawyer or something created this regulation that needed to be done by the state. Or the New York bit license or all of the medical stuff that needs to get done. Meanwhile, you have this whole alternative theory of medicine that's like all of that, you know, bureaucratic Western medical stuff is just bullshit that is just serving to provide an income for the people that got a degree in it and that doesn't actually help anybody you know like i I think these like higher education people a lot of times get in this situation where they really need to make the reality that makes their degree valuable instead of their degree just naturally being valued because of the needs of the people. Like, I'm not saying that that's like everything that's going on, but I feel like there's a little bit of that. Definitely with like the bit license in New York, you know, we saw that. Yeah. We see in certain degree programs, you have to create scarcity. You don't, to me, you have to make it sufficiently difficult to obtain a degree. Like I think in physical therapy, you have to take so many uh, years in the prereqs of physics. Like, do you really need to know the ins and outs of physics to do physical therapy? I can see it being useful in certain levels of calculus, I believe. And it's one of those, I mean, we all heard it's a weed out course. And I wonder if that is a way to create scarcity in a certain discipline to keep the walls higher so you don't flood the market with nurses or flood the market with any kind of potential occupation yes there's committees of anti-free market people all over this country messing up free markets pretending like they're capitalists they're mercantilists they want to fix prices they want a fixed quality of goods so there's no variation they hate the free market more than anything this is their absolute worst thing that they hate is the idea that people will not just get their standardized designed by committee degree i think it's just I think part is just kind of in the political and bureaucratic atmosphere is that the longer something remains dominant in the market, the more intertwined they're going to be with the political sphere. Um, Just naturally. There's not really any way to avoid it. And then when the carpet starts getting pulled out from underneath them, they try to shift the balance of everything to make sure the carpet stays right where it is. And when they're that entrenched in the political system, they use the bureaucracy and they use the attempt to modify the rules to recreate the old environment through legal and regulatory obligations to keep the prices where they were. I think a really good analogy is the medallion system with the taxis, is that 
in an effort to and Uber and Lyft basically tore it down in a matter of years despite the incredible resistance to it and there's still resistance to it. there's huge regulations and restrictions on where and how you can get a lift and like you know how close to the airport they can get and you know all this stuff designated areas and all that crap but it's because there was this art there was this fake scarcity um that was created by selling these medallions these taxi medallions that cost a quarter of a million dollars and they'd it'd be like a giant student loan that you just have for the rest of your life and you think that this medallion is going to make you the taxi driver that everybody has to hire. And in five years, while you're still, you're, you still owe $230,000 on your medallion, suddenly Uber has just taken it out from underneath you. So what do you do? You have to complain to your government. You have to complain that, like, I have the medallion. They don't have the medallion. How could you let them do this to me? Um, and... They have to adhere to their constituents, and they've got a huge industry to support, and they've been backing up their jobs and partnering with them for decades and decades. I mean, what what in New York isn't, you know, the isn't the yellow taxi? Like, that was the staple of New York, you know? And it's, it's like, gone in a matter of years. So they tried to use what power and consolidation that they got over, you know, 100 years ago. Um, to try to recreate that scarcity that's just no longer there. I think part of the, the issue is that we're t- we've been messed up to be- think of time as work. So two people's time is, equ- is has two different values based on those two people. Their time is never equally valuable. It's always variations. But the work is the work. If the work of driving me from here to Glenwood is the same whether it's an Uber driver or a taxi driver, the taxi driver thinks their work is more valuable and won't take the wage the Uber driver is willing to do. And that we've added this extra layer of people's time instead of just paying for work. And it's how we all became like these, you know, degraded employees that are always feel under threat and our livelihood is in our own, our fruits of our labor are on our own, is because we're selling our, our time instead of our labor. So these professions that are like time-based or or time-based, even like a doctor is being paid for his time. If you could, if the two doctors were actually being paid by the procedure, the work gets done in a completely different way. Great worker, great doctors do more work and earn more money money because they see more patients and those patients come back to them because they got good care. But we're not doing that. We've broken the system already. And that's part of why we think that if it's really just the actual work, Work that could be done anywhere, you're going to pay for the same thing all around the world. You're only paying a premium when you're buying people's time, not when you're paying for, for someone's work. When we began this this topic, everyone kind of pitched their idea of whether Bitcoin was going to hurt or help this. Can I we thought get, you were going back to what kind of food was. Bitcoin. I was excited about a new yeah. food coming thrown out. <laughs> no, 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 no. I wish I wish I had now thought of that. Uh, <laughs> Jalupa. <laughs> uh, has anyone changed their position on uh, on whether Bitcoin will will solve this? And I don't know. Maybe it'll help it, but I don't think it'll solve I, I am, it. I haven't necessarily changed my opinion, but I, 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 something has changed me. I'm more committed to the idea that Bitcoin will make this problem worse. Oh really? Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. I no. I just think that um, I think Bitcoin embraces a lot of um, 
capitalistic principles um, that money needs to be sound and you need to be responsible and you need to invest in what you're doing as wisely as you possibly can. You need to understand the system. Um, and I think that it's just going to cause the system to create a greater deficit between haves and haves nots. I think I agree with that. Um, Damn right. I I, no, I don't. I, I'd, I'd agree with you. Sorry to jump in here, but um, I agreed with you up to the point of Bitcoin will create a bigger variety of people willing to do the same job for different amounts of money because it'll expose like the free market nature of people, which has a lot more variety in terms of the subjective value of labor than we've seen before. But I don't. I don't think it's going to extend the wealth gap. Is that what you mean by have and have not? No, I, I think that maybe I need to be more careful, but I, I can see where you're taking issue with what I'm saying. As we become a, a more connected globe and as money can move between individuals more freely, that there will be more people willing to work for greater variances in pay. I think that the be- that, that's I guess my point. The beta of currencies that aren't the dollar is going is higher. So as Bitcoin takes over, bad fiat is going to go down at a exponentially faster rate than than dollars are going to go down. So I could see people in other fiat countries being forced to chase the dro- dropping wages faster than Americans are forced to chase dropping wages. They'll be dropping slower in America. I, th- I think I'm going to take your side of what you're saying. That's Gary. I'm Gary. Um, <laughs> hi, Gary. <laughs> I'm still just Gary. <laughs> um, I think at the end of the day, Bitcoin is, is a new technology. And if you just look at throughout history when new technologies emerged, the people that were able to use and exploit those technologies are those who were educated and those who had capital to begin with. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. Um, now, I don't think it's going to be a, I don't think it's a Bitcoin problem. I just think it's just purely people who are in the game, who are paying attention, who understand, are going to be able to exploit a new and emerging thing before everybody else. Kind of like the computer. You know, the computer was that, um, where, you know, like Bill Gates, like Bill Gates. Um, I think he lived in the Boston area near, near MIT or whatever, and he had access to a computer that he had the ability to practice and fiddle around with it, and that you know then went to you know Harvard and dropped out of Harvard. The rest is history. But the point is, is those people historically, if you look at any technology, um, they've been the first to be able to exploit and use that. Um, and it, it's it's not a good or bad thing. It's just something that is. I think it's I think it's inherent to I think it's inherent to large economic transitions, um, and like that's that's what we're going through right now. Like you give us an example, like when computers, like you know, printing press, like when new technologies come into it. Not only do you have a situation where the people who are paying attention and realize its potential profit massively from it because of the the huge where there's typically like small incremental improvements, there suddenly a, is a huge gap between the people who get it and the people who don't. And the sort of paradigm shift of extra productivity and wealth is created from it as people start to figure it out. But at the same time, because it's transitional, 
Something that you normally wouldn't have with the incremental improvements is the people who think they have value in the old system lose it at the same time that there's this massive potential over here. So it's not just, whereas I found something that was, you know, really valuable um, and, uh, and so like I made money, but everybody kept their relative wealth against whatever was for me. At the exact same time, it was because I saw transition into a system where all the incumbents literally lost their lunch. You, you know, like they, they lost their foundation and didn't see it coming. So you have, uh, during the transition, you have examples of extreme devastation during the transition and then also extreme wealth creation. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree, but I think on net, you're just changing the face of who the haves and the have-nots. Like well, yeah. in the past, it was a particular... You're just changing seats. Yeah, you're just changing seats, but it, it all comes down to, do you identify it? Do you know what its potential and then do you exploit it? Do you yeah. exploit this technology? So, like, I predict literally in 10, 20 years that um, it's sad to think about, but the people who maybe hold Bitcoin or held Bitcoin in the earlier stages are going to be looked upon similarly the way the Google founders and Amazon founders and Apple founders were. I definitely could see that happening. Because as each technology boom happens, it's a smaller group of people who understand and know it and have the even the ability to exploit it. Because it's one thing to know what's going on with Bitcoin. It's another thing to be able to invest or to set up you know, mining back in 2012 or to know how to code it. It's a whole different ballgame. You mean to take Bitcoin for weed? And 2013 on Silk Road, right? That's a that, that's a really <laughs> yeah. small select group of extremely educated people. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't agree with you at first, but I'm I'm starting to agree with you. Yeah, it is a very small percentage of people that understand Bitcoin to the extent, and that percentage of people might be even smaller than the kind of elite now that yes. are in the um, position to do this banking stuff but it does it does also seem more fair in the sense of the lack of money printing like yeah it might be a more select group of people that requires a whole lot of education in order to understand bitcoin but at least like these aren't people that are being able to print money whenever they want you know you have to create and actually find it to to basically be rewarded by it during the transition and one of the interests okay yeah no, just one of the interesting things will be is what do these holders do with that value? What do they do with that yeah. money? Because, I mean, it's it's nice to talk about the reset of the system or just a, a shifting of value. But in the end, we're still human. And we're talking about uh, the natural incentive structure of Bitcoin is is based upon greed. And that's what makes it beautiful is everyone acting in their own best interest works it, in the collective it, best indeed. interest as well so yeah. what happens you know with the with the arc of the industrial revolution you had those people who were stomping on the little guy to build up their wealth or maybe they were creating it very in a very polite way but then generations after that what did that produce so i mean it, it it's tough for me to think about the short-term future versus 
the long-term consequences. But I agree that, that the nature of Bitcoin being auditable, being uh, having the fixed supply is definitely a better system and limits some of the ways that our human nature has exploited the current one. Uh, but it'll, it'll definitely be interesting. I think it'll be after our lifetime uh, to see what that looks like and how the, the nature of humans will potentially corrupt this. I mean, like that's kind of what I think the, the talk within the community of, of Lambos is so problematic because it lets me to believe that the people who do who do have Bitcoin are just going to use it to not make the, the planet a better place. If we truly believe that this is what this is for, then yes, you should be able to gain wealth. But are you gaining wealth as a as as that's the end, or do you plan to take that and use it to try and better mankind? Here's the thing: is I think the the Lambo meme is fun, and you know I've retweeted it and said it. I'm never going to buy a Lambo. I could. It, I think it's the worst investment ever, and it does nothing for anybody. But in the grand scheme, I think outside of it being fun for you know just as a meme, um, it's also the speculators that come in wanting the Lambos, and they're not going to be the ones on top when you get through all of this. They're the ones that are just there to gamble. They were. The last place they were at, they were gambling, and the next place they go to, they'll be gambling. Um, so I think that's mostly where that comes from. But the kind of the beauty of the sound money aspect and like what it does to your perspective is that it makes you think in long term. It makes you ask the question, is this a meaningful purchase? Is this, is this actually going to bring efficiency and like you know increased capacity to my life, or am I just buying a toy when I could just not have it? Like I could, I don't have to be extravagant. I don't have to be wasteful. I don't have to just buy this because it's the next shiny gadget. Like if it's not meaningful, I'll hold the money and leave my investment in the economy as a whole, rather than consuming it for my own personal use. Um, do you, to take it in a slightly different direction, do you guys <laughs> like? Want to get back to the Lambo? Uh, here's a. It, it's still somewhat. <laughs> Do you guys think salaries are even feasible if Bitcoin takes over? Yeah. You 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 could price a salary in Bitcoin. You just change the agreement. You just change the agreement. How do you change the agreement? I'm saying I don't I don't think it is. I don't think it's possible. I think you have to do short term purchase orders. You will do this work by this date. If you don't get it done by that date, you're not getting the Bitcoin price I quoted you. Well, I mean, well, if there's some degree of expectation for inflation or deflation, that can be written into a contract. Um, and I think we will literally have, I think something that is inevitable in Bitcoin that we're actually already seeing take place um, uh, is essentially a market to to buffer as, as a buffer zone, a whole section of the market that's just a buffer for the volatility of Bitcoin so that people can use it without being exposed to the its extreme moves. Um, but the extreme moves will just wreck these companies and they'll go bankrupt. Like they're that's why that's they're why they'll be around. hedging. They'll, they'll essentially hedge. hedge until they go bankrupt. Like the Bitcoin will swamp them. They will lose if they think they can hedge Not Bitcoin. If, if they're hedging, they can hedge it, they're hedging, hedging a if sound hedging money. Like somebody's, if they're you hedging can, somebody's salary, then it's a question of if the salary goes up in value, they 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 lose money by the agreement to uh, the person. 
but their hedge makes an enormous amount of money because they hedge in that direction. To offset the, to the offset loss of value. whatever the loss yeah. might be in order to come out with zero. Hopefully, he- hedging you know, hedging with, with what? Like, I, I think, uh, like, you're going to hedge with dollars, which you, have already been determined can, worthless because we moved to a Bitcoin future. Like, there's no way. Hedging well, well, to a futures so, contract. So, so, at that point, if we move to, if, if, if there's a two-currency system, let's say U.S. and Bitcoin, um, and you, you can still kind of price them both, you're going to hedge. But if you move to a one-currency system, then there is no need to hedge because what is it fluctuating against technically but like it, let's say how many let's say someone wants to get paid 10 bitcoin a year at these prices that's a good salary but it's not crazy but that's versus the u.s dollar that's what i'm saying in a, in a scenario where hyper let's say hyper bitcoinization occurs and bitcoin is the only currency being used what are you what other currency are you comparing bitcoin to in that situation well Here's what I'm saying. Getting at there's a finite number of Bitcoin. You can't pay everybody ten Bitcoin a year. You can pay to uh, two point one million people total, and that's assuming somehow you get liquidity of the entire Bitcoin marketplace every year to pay salaries. You can't pay salaries in Bitcoin because it's a hard money. Yes, but here's the thing: is that let's say there's one generation of companies that make this terrible decision, and then the price of Bitcoin skyrockets ten x, and all of these companies go bankrupt because they have to pay everybody, you know, 10x the wage until they're basically out of money and now the companies die. Well, the next generation of companies knows that they do not sign long-term agreements or they don't do it without some significant hedge under the condition that, you know, whether it's just a futures contract, whether it's an insurance, whatever, um, uh, for movement in the value of the money that they're paying salaries in. You You could put that in an agreement that adjusts whatever we're quoting in Bitcoin. So maybe it's supposed to be, you know, 10 Bitcoin. Maybe the price moves up to where it's no longer 10 Bitcoin. Let's say it was at a fixed price at that moment. It's not one Bitcoin. So now you only have to deliver one Bitcoin and it has the same value from when you entered into the contract when it was 10. But it's accounting for the fact that the price has increased so much that you don't have to deliver 10. You can deliver one now and still it kind of balances out. Mm-hmm. Now what you use that Measuring stick is another thing, but you could do that. But you've chosen you've chosen to maintain a salary, which is a you don't want to do. You you ideally Bitcoin will kill the concept of a salary because it's actually a bad it thing could. that you've now allotted to another person your time as long. If you don't show up as long as they want you to, they fire you. You but, know, it's well. I think the internet, just in general, and Bitcoin could probably again add to this and likely accelerate it is just the individualization of work is that we're you know we're seeing independent contracts being a regular thing i just hired somebody to do the logo for this thing and i don't i don't know who it was i paid him for one thing that was it you know um so like like i think i think the gig economy has rightfully exploded on the internet and will continue to do so and particularly when there are a lot of chances of arbitrage between incredibly high versus incredibly low wage areas i don't think that's going anywhere so that could that could have something to do with it you know i just think in the future you do two hours of work a day and you're done you did the work there's why why did you sign a i'll go to work for 10 hours a day five days a week salary it's nonsense you need to break the salary to actually get accurate economic measurements you need to measure work not productivity of individuals that are trapped there 
I, I think one of the difficulties here is that time is a lot easier to measure than work. Like it's one of those things where it's like the things that are important in life are very difficult to measure. And the things that are easy to measure in life are not exactly the important things. You know what I mean? It's like your example of an Uber driver driving you from here to, you know, somewhere else. That work is easy to measure. But I think that's an exception. I think for the most part, the value of a particular person's contribution to a company is very difficult to measure. And that's why we just result, we just resort to this time thing and also um corporations need to keep people in a cage for eight hours a day the more to keep thing. them from starting a company to compete with them. yeah you're taking a 10x wage cut by working for your employer yes. they are you they are getting you to waste your life in an unproductive and stupid way because they don't do the work they're just they went to harvard they figure out how to manage people. They see that you do work. They're going to manage you doing that work. They've never done the work you're doing before, but they can tell you how to manage it. This is how kings did it, and we built our entire system around pointing at servants and telling them to do their work better. I'm a king. But, and we pretended like that's a good thing because we have no critical thinking skills. No, I truly but, think the – oh, you, I'll let you go. You go ahead. I think the, the, the source of that, I think the source of the major barrier there is that – the business provides so many shortcuts for the employee that it aren't taught that like the employee doesn't know and it's normal stuff about running a business that everyone should know. I actually think, and maybe it's a degree of like explicit control, um, uh, from, you know, some sort of, I don't know. It's like, it's hard to say it without it sounding like it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's a, a conspiracy of incentives. Um, and But that people are not taught how to be independent. Like, there's a reason that at the end of school, you know you're really good at standing in line, doing what you're told, and raising your hand. Like, that's what you're good at. Um, and But all the normal stuff, interacting, negotiating, making agreements with people, sorting out the details of a contract. Having professional disputes with people. We're having professional disputes, which should be utterly basic. That should be grades one through five. Like, aren't, are non-existent. They just don't exist in our, in our space. So now the business that does all of that for us is making sure that we get that one tenth of the wage, whereas when we did it, when we do it by ourselves, we might get a hundredth of the wage because we don't even know what it means to ask for what we're worth. And so they provide themselves a huge barrier to competition in their market by making what should not be specialized information specialized information by forcing everyone into a very regimented uh, education system that refuses to discuss it. Mm. So. Maybe there's something there. Hmm. No, I was going to get back to Lambos. <laughs> Do you want to say something on this topic? Uh, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. So we can probably relate this to what we were just talking about. But when we were talking earlier about the people that in, are into Bitcoin are a lot of times just like wind, moon, Lambo. And, but I also feel like there's this other category of people in Bitcoin that are like super sound money purists, like good for the earth. And there's like no in between. And well, okay, there's in between. Obviously, everyone here is in between. Um, but 
I find myself I have to make friends with the Win Lambo people a lot. And like, cause I'll go to meetups and it's like, yeah, you guys are here for the sound money of Bitcoin, right? And they're like, no, we're, Lambo. yeah, Lambos. we're here for Lambos. And I just have to be like, all right. Like, I, I just, <laughs> yeah, I just have to like make friends with these people. And it's so weird because I feel like Bitcoin, it brings out like the best and the worst of humanity. It's, it, it's so it's so interesting to me. I don't know how that relates to. It, yeah, it's odd that there's not about. an in between person showing up very often. It's yeah. the person who's genuinely intellectually cur- curious or genuinely has zero intellectual curiosity curiosity whatsoever <laughs> it's it is the it is the extreme of the people who are very principled and want to know how bitcoin can affect and change the world and the people and then the people who are to- completely unprincipled and are just opportunists to the core and just see dollar sign dollar sign dollar sign i think that's encapsulated per- Great, uh, a great way in this tweet when I mentioned it before from Naval, Bitcoin is a tool for freeing humanity from oligarchs and tyrants dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme. Yes, there's wait, that's from Naval. Yeah, that oh, that's that's an old one, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. old. This is like from two, yeah, yeah, something like that. So, look, freeing humanity from oligarchs and tyrants—that's a very noble effort. But uh, it's dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme. So you see yeah. both of those aspects and the people that we encounter and it's like kind of polar opposite so it should, shouldn't be too surprising but you need both you need both because the get rich quick schemers are going to come in and they're going to succeed or they're going to fail through trading and whatnot but then uh, it's the, the the idealist that i think is going to what's carry it through and the get rich quick schemers are going to pump the pump the bubbles that's a really noble sentiment so long as you're not a tyrant yes sucks if you're if you are yeah I mean, there's there's a i was debating whether i should say this or not but every time i have the sort i kind of have to err on the side of sharing um in, okay yeah yeah so long as no one from the office listens to this um it is common it is common practice for me to engage in mild upsec in my office by constantly letting everyone know how complicated it is to run the business to, to to ensure that they understand that the grass isn't greener on the other side and that going and starting your own business certainly is an option, but it's the the worst option for you. It sounds like a confession. Straight up. <laughs> I mean it's At it is terrible. I can totally see that. I mean it's it's, it's, it's complicated running yeah. a business and, and you just deal with other kinds of complexity as opposed to just, you know, being the employee where you don't have to worry about all those other things. And a lot of people don't want to make the leap. And we've discussed a, a moment ago, um, Dave, during your excellent, excellent soliloquy, which I, I am going to play that as my, my ring back, if that was still a thing. On my Verizon. Ring back is a thing. Is I have a, a friend that has a ring okay. back. Yeah. Well, that should be my ring back. Um, but it, you can get it. You can 10x your salary by going out on your own, doing your own thing. But you also 100x your risk. And that's the part that people can't tolerate because we are trained and we're taught to be risk adverse. Yes. And I think that's the greater crime. I don't think schools teach much or will ever competently teach anything, but they sure as heck drill into you how bad it is to fail. Yeah. I, I, but I don't. That's I don't, the one thing you learn at school, in my opinion. Well, well one, um, I, I appreciate 
your honesty. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's self-serving, but it's also truthful in that it is hard to start a business and run a business. But I think the bigger, I, I don't think, you know, risk averse is something that's taught. I think it can be honed or encouraged, but I think it's something that we have innately within ourselves. Like if we spend all this time to like think back in the wild and you kill an animal and you spend days hunting this animal and then somebody comes and snatches that animal away from you, you don't have any food. Well, the ne- first of all, it's, it's a shock for you. But second, you're going to try your hardest to ensure that when you do kill that animal, that that animal is for you, for you to eat. That's part of the risk averses. So if it's, if it's, you know, getting into a group of people and saying like, hey, let's all go out and kill this animal and I'll take this piece, you take this piece, and then you take this piece and we ensure that nothing comes and takes that piece away from us so that we don't get anything. That's kind of how like the collective community began to form around, the, around that was risk averseness. So I think we are inherently are risk averse. I think there's probably a smaller portion of the population that is probably less risk averse than others. And those tend to be those who start businesses or who just take risk. But overall, as a group, I think humans are afraid of losing the very thing that they have. Even if even if it's possible that they can gain a lot more if they risk this very thing, the pain of losing this very thing supersedes whatever gains they would have gotten from winning by risking a certain thing. I think something that is not discussed very often is that humans were not extreme individuals before civilizations, that we lived in tribes. So if you're having a bad day at the hunt, everyone kind of like looked out for each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when you move away from Much like smaller networks, yeah, so a lot tighter. It was insurance, if you think about it. Yeah. If you didn't catch, somebody else That's caught and you ate. Yeah. But it worked out well. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to simulate that with our societies recently, but our societies are too large to do this without free rider problems. Whereas with a sufficiently small size community, free riding doesn't happen. They police their own successfully and it works out well. And you don't do more work than needs to be done. You just get the hunt done and you're good. And, you know, you've hedged each other and it works out. But the idea that you would just, as a singular individual, be, be this economic juggernaut so much that so that you can uh, your, your whole family can be dependent on you is a very recent phenomenon. Um, and it's unrealistic. People, people, family members bail each other out all the time. For instance, like if yeah. you don't necessarily like, it's a hopeless situation, but you there needs to be some sort of fail safe. And lots of times we forget that it happened because it's an embarrassing episode that we don't want to talk about. But you, there's all there's always been that element in society that you do need some help, uh, ideally from community members or. On yeah. well, the. On kind of a concept of like risk averseness though is that it's funny like we have this like huge natural tendency um but that uh, like and that's like one of those things that like i feel i feel like we should be taught as kind of the management of risk because this day and age the the risk of most of the things we do is not anything near you know the risk of like it was when all of these emotional tendencies were set into our DNA. 
Um, and like our ability to, I mean, that's what all, that's what all the economy is, is us leaning on each other to do things that for each other that we can't do for ourselves. Um, in doing so, like, it's like during these periods of huge wealth creation that we have the opportunity, we have the gap to take huge risks and do crazy stuff. And it's kind of sad that we don't really embrace that more. And, and I think we do somehow end up in this space where, like, like you, should, you suggest, is that like, it's just taught to be so ashamed of when you fail or make a mistake, which I think is, in a way, a great thing because you, you tried to understand something and you learned a hard lesson about exactly what you didn't understand. You know, like, like mistakes are the path to actually figuring out how something works. Hmm. Um, and so, like, like, I think we are way too averse to risks that are not what, are not as bad as they should be made out to be. And, and that we're, we're unfortunately taught to be ashamed of something that is a necessity. Um, yeah, uh, the risk of failure is the only reason we don't have flying cars. I, I, I kind of think the opposite in a little like I agree you should do, be taking these huge risks it's the spiritually best thing to do for yourself and figure out who you actually are is to fail but I think we're we've got our social situation is pretty bad right now yeah. where a slight drop in income will lose you your friend group to a certain extent your ability to spend and keep up is keeps you there and they're not going to follow you down if you can't keep going to the same restaurants. If you've decided to start your own business and you can't pay the country club membership anymore, those people aren't going to come visit you outside the country club. Um, you know, uh, it's and I that's kind of a more extreme example. But even like a slight drop, you might have to hang out with the different people at your church or something than who you were hanging out with. Like people don't want to if they're going to be talking about a certain. A, a certain shorthand of you know the uh, the metro in in the Basque region region of Spain, and you no longer are the person that's going to Spain every summer. They don't want you around because you're kind of a bummer. And we've kind of been programmed that way, where you don't want to be aware that there's someone not doing as well as you ever. That's I only hang out with people that have a whole Bitcoin. And it's like sorry. If you don't have a, if for you don't some have reason, one, I don't have a problem with that, and I can't. <laughs> 6.15 right now. <laughs> I was going to say 6.5 and 6.15, but then I held back because that's uh, it's kind of a lot these days. That is a lot. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Um, I think that's becoming more of a problem in the U.S. as we become more afraid and more kind of scared. The interesting experience that I had when I was living in England, though, was that they are way more afraid of failing than we are. Hmm. Um, like, even though the U.S. might be getting bad, I still think we are the best at yes being I, okay with failing. That's actually <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. If you compare, if you compare the U.S. to other countries, the U. The, the U.S. The U.S. has a reputation of being very creative and being able to take risk. You know, this kind of you know, think of like the John Wayne, like the guy that's out in the wilderness, like willing to make it or fail, doesn't care, they're going to try. That's the reputation they have. And other countries like China, 
they're trying to imitate what the U.S. has. Because what the Chinese, what they teach is the idea of um, stick to the script. This is, you do this, X plus this plus this gets you this output. And that's great for mastering existing tasks. But if you want to create new ideas, you have to try out these new ideas and you have to fail a lot. That's the that's the competitive edge that the United States still has over a lot of countries that they're finding hard to replicate. Like if you look at from the tech companies to Silicon Valley, those are just engines of people going out, having an idea, trying to get money, fail, try again, fail. Eventually you hit something hmm. at, as long as you have money. Eventually you will hit something. Um, and so if you compare just countries to the United States, you know, we generally still take a lot of risk. And we're okay with this idea of moving fast and breaking shit because eventually we'll figure it out. Whereas other countries like we have to be very detailed and measured on how we take each and every step because we don't want this step to be wrong because it messes the whole thing up and we have to start again. We're like, okay, if we, if we screw up, we'll start again and again and again until eventually we get something. Hmm. I think it's cool how... Um nervous we are about losing that though like just the community if we sense that we are um becoming less risk averse or if we're becoming more risk averse we're like no 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 no, you know like like something's wrong no no no, we can't do that where and that really is different and i i had no idea that that was the case until i lived outside the u.s i really didn't but it, it definitely is true um, it, it changed my political views completely, actually, because, you know, I, when I grew up, I was not, not to get into like my political situation, but I was like, oh, this cowboy U.S. stuff. We think we're badass. We're going to, you know, invade Iraq. Like, who do we think we are? Like, I, I hated this crap about the U.S., but then I lived outside and I was like, no, there's there's something kind of cool about the maverickness of, you know, the, the risk takingness of it. And so... I don't know. I got all mixed up there. Well, you're picking up that you're, when, the, when you, people are being like masculine cowboys on TV, they're faking it. And it's obvious they're like TV preachers of business and you just know it's not authentic. But there are the real people. They're, they're just not well known. I and mean, when you actually meet someone in Wyoming who's awesome, it's just like, okay, this is what America's all about. This is great. Whereas like when George H.W. Bush, who's from Connecticut, pretends to be a cowboy, it, immediately, make, it throws everything off because you're seeing something that's not true and you know it. And and it gives you the wrong opinions. But the other thing is that America winning, like we care about winning too much. But at least if you win, you def, it's in def, we defend it till the end. Like I don't care how awesome you were up until this point in life. If you eventually hit it big, everybody's got your back. Everybody's congratulating you. It doesn't matter where you came from. You did it. You know there is we have an objective standard for success that you can't you can't really take away from people try to do it all the time. They try to get pretentious about it, but it doesn't really stick. And the people who complain usually get, get the worst of it. I think I've found like the older I get, the more I find that every idea, like every ideology, every culture, um, always, you always get this really surface level view of it. Hmm. And that's where 99.5% of the opinions come from. But if you dig a little bit deeper, 
there's always some subset of really intellectually curious, like really like they've got some sort of a foundation or something very interesting and unique about the culture that makes them them. And then like 90% of the rest of them kind of like half copy it and just kind of like do what they think the other ones are doing. So if you don't dig, it always looks absurd. <laughs> like it always just looks like the fake cowboy or something like that. Um, and I think the only place that that hasn't held up so far is Bitcoin SV. Um, but, but for the most part, I, I, I feel like I don't know, political views that I haven't, that I don't agree with even always have some degree of something interesting or somebody worked really hard to play out the thought process and play out the ideas. It's still fun to explore, even though I might disagree with it. So, um, Yeah, the wisdom of the culture is encoded there, and you might not be able to unencode it to see that it's there. Mm-hmm. But the way this culture was able to survive for hundreds of years was mm-hmm. was the was something in the storytelling or this, you know, we cook our food this way and it doesn't make sense to you, but they would have died off a thousand years ago if they cooked a different way. And it's the information still there in the food cooking process. It looks dumb to us, but at some point it was very important. And I think we, we do just kind of overlook that sometimes. I, I think I've changed in thinking that Bitcoin would become kind of accepted by the world and outside America to more of no, it's probably going to be more Americans that adopt Bitcoin before anybody else. Like before, yeah, like because of the and because of the education thing, uh, because of the risk taking thing, and sometimes I wonder if uh, this is why Andreas is kind of moved recently to kind of where he's been is that he's realized that um, Bitcoin has become this thing that the i want i don't want to say elite but the super educated of the world are going to jump on top of like really quickly and it's not it's not going to actually get to the people that that need, the that, that need it that the most but that's my that's and that's that's where i'm at yeah um, as I, I start to sit back yeah. and kind of see how everything's playing out you know with wall street eventually going to jump in and we're talking about you know people allocating this percentage or that percentage of their portfolio to Bitcoin. Um, I think it's just going to be exploited by that, like globally. I think I think we are the pre-group before we get to the first group that truly globally exploits it, which is when I think it's the financial industry that begins to come in and create all these services around it. You kind of see it now with Coinbase and all the you know, the, the different relationships it has with New York regulator, regulators and other banks and other institutions, um, I think that's inevitable. That's going to happen. And I still think it can be used as a currency for people um, in developing nations who don't have access to dollars or want to find a way to transact to get access to dollars or ho- however way you see it. I think it's still going to be useful. But if we're talking about, you know, reaching a level of saturation where the, the value of it skyrockets, you're going to have to get the foundations, the pensions, the high net worth clients, the ultra high net worth clients. You're going to have to get them to allocate money and resources 
towards this thing, which inherently means that in order for them to do so, they have to understand it, which means they are probably on the, on the spectrum, higher educated. They're going to be the ones that's going to exploit it first before everybody else. We, we can okay. save this for another time, but I think Bitcoin as an investment is a beta feature. And once we're out of beta, it ceases to be an investment. That once it's actually the world's reserve currency, what it's solving is to that... To the degree. Yeah, but that's like, that's like 20, 30, 40 years out though, right? Yeah, but it's not like people in poor countries were going to be able to get a substantial hoard of Bitcoin that they could like retire off of or send their kids to school or anything. What it's going to do is let the people all over the world, in a, and if it works like it should work, and do Austrian economic policy over the world with a hard currency, is people will keep the fruits of their own labor. Yeah. And that starts out small because you still don't have many skills and you're in a poor country, so people can't, can't give you very much from the their excess wages either but you save and then you move up and you're you know you get better schools and everyone will pull themselves out of poverty once there is a fair system where you are not being exploited from your labor you're actually keeping it even if it starts out small it will get to catch up and you also have to remember too that as we build like a large financialized market and investors and uh you know, like business capital, like being built up in the Bitcoin economy from some sort of meteoric rise or a series of them, um, is that the as jurisdictions, as, as trade borders start to break down and things get more streamlined and you can communicate better with all of these, all the unbanked and those people that needed needed Bitcoin the most, that could benefit from it the most, is that Investing the capital in uh, in a ninety percent developed economy, you might make somebody twenty percent more effective. Investing that capital in an economy that doesn't even have cell phone communication yet, you can do half the investment and you make every individual that you interact with twenty times as productive, not twenty percent. Like and. Uh, and because of that, that's where all the wealth will flood, is exactly where Bitcoin does solve those problems. And the arbitrage opportunity for the new explosion of business and industry is in making the least productive people 2x, 3x, 10x more productive with small investments. Yeah, finance is being Broadly. kept out of the third world where it needs it most because yeah. of corruption. And if we can eliminate corruption there then it will just start rushing in to like fill the gap. There is like a really simple solution to this and it just basically involves a pig and going into the woods. Truffles. Go truffle hunting. Truffles. $2,500 a pound. I don't guys. think Jimmy knows what we're talking about. Does no he? idea. No. <laughs> we, we started out today with the question which we will now return to, which is if Bitcoin was a food or were we saying a vegetable or a fruit... So, okay, food. any food. Any if Bitcoin was a food, what would it be? And the best answer we came up with was truffle, although don't go, don't go with truffle. Just what, what came to your mind immediately? You're like, Bitcoin is a food. What came to your mind? Uh, well, truffle was uh, said because it is $2,000 a pound. This is like a really special type of mushroom that can't be grown in captivity. It can't be farmed. It has to grow in the wild. Which is why I like it. No, I don't really care about the about price. I just like that it has to be grown in the wild. 
Yeah, truffle yeah. mac and cheese is the shit. Truffle, truffle salt is what I highly recommend because you can then add this to other things and it's so pungent um, that you pungent just need to add a little a bit. characteristic that makes me want it. <laughs> is there such a thing as good pungent? Yeah, yeah. Good pungent. <laughs> I don't Yeah. <laughs> Kind of like the word moist. It's a moist. <laughs> you, 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 you open it. You open a jar and it's just like, uh, like it, it's like smelling I'm salt almost. It's, it's just a weird moist. word. Yeah, Screw you and your moist. <laughs> where, where are you going with this, Jerome? No, I, I, I just think that you know we're, we're talking about letting people keep the fruits of their labor. Um, I, I almost think that is a counterproductive concept that is opposite to the ideas of what capitalism and bitcoin stand for i am so confused right now (laughs) you're gonna have to expand so so for for a a truly capitalistic endeavor uh society to exist people are going to have to work at differing wages and there are going to be people that exploit the capital they have better than those that don't and there are going to be people people that have differing capital um, that give them better opportunities. I think that's a fundamental tenet of capitalism. And there will always be people that do better than others in capitalism. So yeah, certainly. getting getting to, I, I think what you're saying is letting people keep more of what they make is I, it seems to me almost contradictory to the idea of capitalism. So, I mean, I'm happy to be wrong about that, and yeah, maybe I'm missing ca- some key insights. So capitalism and free trade are not exactly the same, or th- and free markets are not exactly the same thing. Elaborate. Please. Yeah, please. Free markets are really just an, an open season. There's You could have that in anarcho-capitalism, and free markets are the same thing. But what you're describing is more like state capitalism. Like state capitalism wouldn't work. Um, well, I see. There's there's a huge incompatible with inequality that comes from with keeping labor. <laughs> those who can assim- essentially manipulate the measuring stick, as opposed to those who are producing a measurable amount of value. And, and the idea is that um, the, the effect is felt worst of all by those at the bottom, because they are the ones that do not have the assets or the capital that will keep up with inflation, that will keep up with wage. Like, like they fight for a 10% wage raise at the end of the year when they don't even know that that's actually a 1% wage raise because everything got 9% more expensive in their city. Um, and like so they are the ones that are hit hardest specifically because of their situation and their inability to actually hold capital that appreciates. Whereas if you're owning land, you yeah you got wage problems but you don't have property value problems you know like like you're you're riding that wave the the wealthy ride the wave the the poor push the wave um and that will stop happening the wealthy will no longer ride it and the well no i take that back everyone will actually be riding the wave because the wave is the fact that the money gets more valuable evenly across the fact that the entire economy is more productive. So uh, let me maybe um, illustrate where my concern is with the idea that we want people to keep more of what they, they make or earn. Okay. All of it. They want to, you want them to keep all of I it. I want you to keep all of what you learn. You, you earned $100 worth of value. You should be able to spend that $100 in the future. 
and we're just so using no, dollars. So, as so I think that's different from yeah, what I understand different. the the point to be. Okay. Yeah. Because you get to spend a hundred dollars of value if you if you've earned a hundred dollars of value mm-hmm. is different from people keeping more of what they make. Yes. Like the those are two capacity. separate concepts. So there's and that's okay, where explain you, explain the distinction because this is I was just equating the two in my mind. So, so one's one's currency based, so one is just pure productivity. The amount of resources or wealth that you are generating, it, it, excluding from the fact that there's like a currency debasing, kind of like mm-hmm. look at it from the perspective of the the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. There, up until let's say before World War One, it was like post Civil War, the globe used you know the gold monetary standard um, during that time frame. That also coincided in the same period of the industrial revolution, where you had massive amounts of inequality and it was because people were able to exploit the new product you know the new ways of whether it's for oil or mining for coal or whatever to create goods and services they were able to pay you know lower wages to the average person and then extract um, above that wage in the form of profits for themselves and is that kind of how you see it so i think that's a that's a really spot on an us but i think that's like more complicated than what i was thinking what i was thinking of is trying to drop it down to just an office workplace so something that yeah i think all of us can relate to um let's say for a moment gary has a set of breasts and a vagina and as a result <laughs> as a result <laughs> of changed his name to mary 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 is now married. So, so because of your gender, what what is your gender? Well, let's say for the hypothetical that you're a lady, and uh, do, do you are you going by going by your your? Oh, you said your name already. Yeah, sorry, Molly. Yeah. Okay. So oh, yeah. sorry, not mixing it up. Okay. So <laughs> this is totally okay. So I'm totally run this. Okay. So let's just assume for a moment that both of you have. ABC qualification that is a licensure granted from the state. You're equally qualified to do the job that I, I as an employer, am hiring you to do. The average industrialized wage for this position is a hundred thousand dollars per year, and that is pretty. That's pretty well known for the employers, and maybe employees have less access to that information. I offer you, guy, the position at 98000 and you accept it after some negotiation. And maybe I initially offered it at ninety, and you're like, hey, bro, I've been doing this for two years. Mm-hmm. But Mary gets, with her two years of experience, offered 85000 or let's say 90000 as well. Maybe I'm, not a, maybe I'm not a bigot, sexist, or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, the course of negotiations fail... And instead of getting the 95, Marianne gets 91, right? You're both doing the same amount of work. And for this hypothetical, let's assume that you're producing the same amount of billable hours to, to and, and just the amount of time that you have to build per the hour is identical for the performance of this. And you're producing the exact amount of money and output for the business. And you're on par in every, every way. The clients are equally satisfied one is taking home less money than the other. And I think there is that's the distinction 
that we're trying to make is that there is a difference there's delta between what guy is making and what mary's making and that's the take-home distinction as opposed to making $91,000 for Mary and being able to spend $91,000. So the idea that going back to what Dave was saying, this concept, so many names going around, it's like an actual full-time <laughs> job. Yes. Just <laughs> use a different name every time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Roger was saying a moment ago that the, the idea is that people keep all of what they do. It's impossible. It's not possible. Because yeah. while I'm paying You're Mary... You're wrong. The total <laughs> no, because... Well, just bear with me. I'm billing, I'm billing you out, Mary, to a client, and I'm making $500,000 top-line revenue of what you do. But my cost for you being there is $91,000 plus benefits. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. No, that's that's the gap of, like... So, so I don't... I just Providing the, like... The, the risk barrier or the organization Absolutely. barrier, whatever I, so, it is, but you're just getting paid for the part of owning the service that's so, making exactly. her ca- capable. Mary's only making and taking home 91000 mm-hmm. where where she is billing out 500000 is, is Am I just completely misunderstanding your, yeah, in a, your, in a free, your thought here? Because you and I are on the yeah. same page, right? Yeah, in because, a free, Jimmy? Yeah, but yes. okay, yeah, I, but I you're saying your service isn't isn't worth anything. Where When you say your service, you're saying me as the employer? The act of organizing it, getting that client in the first place, like distributing it out, the work to a much – like like – yeah, all of that is still worth something. Oh, no, absolutely. Right. So there's three parts to this. The employer is going to be making the most money. Uh, yes. Knock on wood. Um, but in, in this present hypothetical, Guy is going to be making more than Mary. So when, because he's making 95, Mary's making 91, and the employer is making the most. Was was Guy working for you and yes, Mary so, was working? Uh, so me, Guy and Mary are the employees. Okay. And, and let's say uh, Jerome is the right. employer. So, But, but th- this gets to uh, the fact that Mary might be living with and have a partner that also has a job and prefers to stay in the location that he but she is we're, in. We're, we're, we're saying on we're just saying on aggregate like if we made it to like the well, there ter- won't. the entire economy was just yeah. like this one firm like a company is going to set is going to pay is, if the price for a service is a hundred thousand the company is not going to pay you the hundred thousand. Yeah, they're going to pay you whatever price of that ninety or eighty or seventy. In a situation so, where you take home everything, the the person doing the work gets the entire a hundred thousand dollars. Well, the five hundred thousand. Oh, the five hundred. Yeah, this is where I wanted to get yeah. at. Is there is no free market where someone makes five hundred thousand dollars worth of work and keeps a hundred thousand dollars. You keep twenty percent of your labor, and you think you you're in a free market. You're just too stuck into. Oh, you mentioned like ten government monopolies in a row where, that are all backed up by soldiers, and you're like, I wonder why no, I'm getting four hundred thousand dollars, and the person that did the work market. only kept a hundred thousand. That's a hundred percent it. Is that? It's, yeah, I just. You, you, I, I disagree. I think I think we're discounting the the fact that the the situation isn't the same as a as a employee in the business versus as an individual. Is that it's to suggest that they would have the exact same deal, be having the exact same conversations, they'd have the exact same 
computer and platform and business and network and everything to work from from as an individual, which is what's making their billing billable at five hundred thousand dollars, and they are getting ninety one thousand or ninety five thousand, whatever it is. That's probably an increase of twenty to thirty thousand from what they are worth as an individual without the brand, without the network, without the trust of the organization that's been around for thirty years and has hired ten thousand other people who all provide good customer satisfaction. You know, like it, it, it appears to me that your definition of free trade, and and I'm happy to be told I'm wrong here, is that every single person is their own employer. Yes. Yeah, so here's. Yeah. My, so very few women choose to be prostitutes because it's a degrading, terrible thing to do with your life. In the same way, in a free market, no one chooses to be employees. No one chooses to take $100,000 of the $500,000 worth of work they did that year. Well, they only do it because there are men with guns that did it because men with guns made them go to school or their parents would have been put in jail because they, you know, it's, it's just violence all the way down. And the final result which you, if you can just comprehend this, is you convinced a man that you should take $400,000 from him and he should keep 100000 and you're acting like the state didn't use guns to make that happen? So, I don't think there's any coercion. I think, I think the, there's like the salary it works for most people because it removes, we talked about this earlier, the element of risk. Like You could go out on your own and capture the full price of the $100,000. But there's a lot of groundwork that you need to do and build yourself into a reputation to do that. That's what starting a business is. It costs you a million to get there. Right. That's what starting a business is, is going out and getting exactly what's on the market. When you join a corporation, Mm. you don't want to do any of that work. You just want to get a fixed sum that you can plan and worry about retirement or buy a house so you, you don't take a hundred thousand because you're not going to get a hundred thousand because you know that's what the employer is going to get by selling your service you're going to get 70 you're going to get 80 you're going to get 80 you're going to get something below that it's an agreement between you as the employee and me as the employer we're coming to the table and saying this works for me for what subs for whatever reasons that's not monet complete monetary it could just be that i don't want to take this risk and for you it works because i can hire somebody that i would have to pay a hundred thousand but maybe i only pay eighty thousand to do the job and i keep the twenty thousand as an extra you know profit yeah i think that difference is um i think the vast majority of it when you're talking about the employee situation is what you just said is just the risk that's the reality as it is today the the risk and the enormous amounts of capital it takes to set up a position like that that someone else just doesn't want to do. They just want to do the work. But I think it's also just inherent. It's an inherent variation just because of the amount of other things that we're not doing that we rely on to get the work done. Like, the work is not the only factor. Me getting to work is a factor. The the fact that my email is not drowned in spam because there's a guy running code at the like designing code at the email service that might even be offered for free, making sure that I don't just get drowned in spam. There's I mean, there's literally like extended out two or three branches, there's a billion different things getting me to work and making sure that I can actually do that job and I don't have to worry about 
where the hell do I find gas? How do I mine Your employer steel? helped you find like, gas? In, no, employment I'm not about, employer employee relationship is exploitive. I'm talking it is about an in evil general. of our time. I'm it is the evil of the general. last several centuries, period. This was the evil that we're all going to die in. Is that we all wasted our lives working for an employer. I think you're right that it's exploitative, but I don't think it's inherently evil. I think there's going to be certain segments of the population that can do what you're you're advocating for, which is capturing the entire value from the market. And there are going to be those that are willing to forego that for whatever subset of reasons, whether it's preference, whether it's you have it's a spouse like just, you know, that's yeah. making, that's capturing the entire yeah. profit of whatever their services are offering so for whatever reason. Not everybody's going to be, you know, like a freelancer that's able to go out and get it. It's going to be a small group of people who are willing to take that risk. And most people are not going to be willing to take that risk. I, I don't think, I think that the opposite is going, that the risk thing will not be an option. You either learn to fish, there's not a second option. That's the world of Bitcoin. <laughs> you learn to fish. That's it. There I is no, there was no Federal Bitcoin Reserve to print to you some money. More hard truths. Yeah. I think that is absolutely yeah, Everyone's going to be, yeah. people are going to learn a lot of hard lessons with Bitcoin because uh, there is, there is a degree of responsibility that Bitcoin's independence allows or, or that it's essentially enforces that has been shortcutted by authority and hierarchically based systems. And that's no longer the case. In, in the Bitcoin world, you are responsible. And it has certainly taught me hard lessons. And I think, I think, that's, I think that's something very natural and it will actually be a transition and could have an effect on exactly that sort of perspective or market dynamic. I think um, people will be disturbed by how much people doing work that they think should not be valuable are getting rich once Bitcoin takes off. That people, you know, real work is going to be where the money's at and all this fake work economy that we've built of all these services that are ancillary and have, are just, you know, catering to executives and doing nothing are going to go away. It's going to be the majority of the U.S. economy will go away after Bitcoin because we've done a bunch of fat cat jobs to take advantage I'm of. I'm so glad you said fat cats. Yeah. <laughs> I was okay. Cause, because the point I was literally about to make is, is the idea that if, ev if we operated in a free trade economy where everyone was their own employer and they were keeping the fruits of their labor, a hundred percent of that, that labor, you would be shocked at how many gazelle there are. And there are no fat gazelle. You have rarely, rarely lazy gazelle that will only do what is necessary to survive. Hmm. And that's bad for production and industry. That's bad for innovation. That's bad for all the things that, like, are cool. You know, you there's actually a, uh, a part of uh, The Sovereign Individual um, that talks about... Uh, they don't really go into like what it might mean for like our tendency to procrastinate or be leisurely, like like our desire to do that. Um, but that's that's immediately what my mind started racing on. But that for the entire period of like hunter gatherer, is that like most of our day was actually sitting around, like as humans. Um, that we probably did have that two hour, four hour work week uh, that we now claim is like this distant dream. Uh, because uh, for two reasons. One, opportunities to hunt and work 
were limited, so you simply took them when the opportunity landed. And then two, there was no capital to accumulate. You couldn't build a house. There's no refrigerators. You had to leave. You, you had to leave in two yeah. weeks. You could only carry as much wealth. I mean, you could only accumulate as much wealth as you could carry, which you could do at the end of the day. And then why are you accumulating wealth anymore? You're just going to have to leave it all behind. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, I think oh, that's, I that that's, was, that's all those interesting. Yeah. I think that is uh, incredibly insightful, and it comes down to the fact that they didn't have refrigerators. You can't you can't refrigerate <laughs> your gazelle that you've caught or you've killed. You can't like those those berries that you picked off the tree. You got to eat them, and what's the point of picking more than what you need? Maybe they'll stay longer on the bush if you leave them. I just think if you're not in food production, you don't matter, man. All I need is all I need is food next year. I can find a cave to live in. Like all this other j- stuff is like going to be devalued like crazy. Besides guns and food, basically. What about like, you, get, uh, you get a video real games. brutal economy really fast if you if you move to a free market? Like the free market is honest, but you're not going to have wealthy people. You just can't maintain that much wealth in a free market because you can't buy. You don't have a state to do the violent exploitation for you. You have to hire people, and those people will immediately turn their guns on you. Because so, you're hiring thugs to steal other people's labor here we go. instead of a disciplined, uh, brainwashed workforce. You know what the exact opposite of a free uh, a free trade economy is? People buying iPhones that can't afford iPhones. I think we're so far Maybe away from that Maybe if you let them possible. keep some of that other $400,000, Jared, they could afford it. <laughs> but I know you... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they would actually not wow, be in Dave, Dave, Dave on the ones and twos <laughs> dropping, <laughs> dropping word bombs. Uh, no, I, I got a question. Uh, for, they just for, slightly for can't afford it, and they just stay it's, slightly in debt forever because you only raise them just enough to never quite keep up with inflation. And this all, part's not making it to the I final used cut. to take... <laughs> about how hard to, it is to run the business. If they catch on, Jared's just going to make everybody get a law degree. Just go get some more debt. You need more advanced <laughs> degrees to work for me oh, just <laughs> never start your own business to you pay off that debt uh, i got a question for david is, is there a ethically just employer employee situation like would you ever hire someone to work for you like is are all employer employee relations like unethical to you or is there a scenario where it's okay I mean, um, even, even if you if you're hiring them them by contract or whatever, I mean, isn't that isn't that same situation just different oh, set of a oh no, I got <laughs> don't go to the contracts, man. Oh, no, no, <laughs> oh the contracts yeah, are the no, source no, no, of I, all. I, I think that this is a really interesting question because, well, I think we need to get the answer, Dave. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I because I I think where this question leads is a really ethical dilemma, over, well, I'm I'm not interested in ever hiring someone. But I would trade, you know, my cheese sandwich for your chicken sandwich. Well, if someone's mom's sick and they're going to go and capture more chickens and work harder to get more chickens to trade more chicken sandwiches for your cheese sandwiches, by, by being willing to engage with them in that trade and by allowing them to trade with you, you're permitting them to work. And by doing so, you're basically creating an economy that forces them to be able to have to work because they know they can bring you those chicken sandwiches. And by doing that, you're effectively becoming the employer. Every contract is some kind of 
um, em- employment contract, whether it's arm's length and independent contractors, one person's buying something that another person has had the capital to make, procure, design, develop, and provide. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying is that everything is contracts. Everything is employment. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unfair inherently. And, and I think also, like, even when you work for yourself, your employer is the customer's and the clients that you work for, because ultimately those are the people that will that you know allow you to have a living. If you have nobody buying your services, then you're out of business. So, and and even if you kind of look back, like we we started from like again the hunter gatherer. What caused economies to develop was the agricultural revolution when more food could be created, and that gave people that said, okay, you focus on growing crops. I want clothes. You look like you're pretty good at making clothes. You do that. And you look like you're pretty good with, you know, carpentry stuff. So I kind of want chairs and and tables so I can eat my food on instead of sitting on the ground. You create that stuff and people begin to, you know, specialize. And that's how an economy works because then you trade your labor for, and used to be back in those days for grain. Like I think in ancient Egypt, they didn't have like gold. They were paid in grain. Um, and depending on the amount of grain that you could have was a measure of your wealth. So if you were able to obtain more grain, that meant you were richer. You could do more things. You can hire people to do more stuff for you. But I think the important thing is you're trading a product, not the time of your labor. You need to produce something that is not yourself that you can sell, something that isn't completely independent of you in a free market. And then you can move into an ethical system. As far as like hiring people, there's no need. Why do you need to work for me? I only spent two hours today doing my work. If you're slow, just do three hours a day doing your work. We're not. There's no need for employment because the things I will do when I'm done with my two to three hours of work are the things I actually care about with my life. I've no longer taken my hobbies and pretended like they're the same thing as my work. I will actually go and write a play after I'm done fishing. I will actually go paint Here's a painting a after I'm done growing my crops. You know, this is what you do is you, it's, the work is done. The boring, we survived the winter stuff is now done. Sure. And now there, you can collaborate with other people on all sorts of stuff. There's no need to exchange money. No. I don't need to pay you to be here You're, if you, you know. Until you need that tooth pulled by that dentist. Now, Until you need to hire someone that's got specialized knowledge that's been able to dedicate themselves to a specialized skill because you're not hiring them. You're hiring their ability to do a job that you can't do because you don't have the time. I'm, it's a work order. I could write it down. I'm not hiring dentist blank for a year. No, but here's the but thing. But if you can't let me give you a, Let me give you a hypothetical, you man. Um, uh, let's say I find somebody who's like I've got some sort of a job or a product that I do that requires like five steps almost every single time. It's like basically the same five steps. I can do two of them really well, and I've got to find someone else to do the other three. Now, and I do, but it's qualitative work. It's something where I can hire somebody and they do a crappy job, and I can hire somebody and do they do a good job. But, you know, it's generally three hours of their time every single time. Now, Let's say, like, I do this a lot, but then there's, like, spans where, like, for a couple weeks, I don't need anybody to do it. Now, if I found somebody who I paid the general 20% of whatever, you know, the project money was to, to get that part of the job done, 
and they're just really good at it. But sometimes I go back to them and they're not available because they're busy with five other people's projects. I would be willing to pay that person twice the amount I usually pay them so that they were sitting there doing nothing for when I needed them. Like, so that they were there, always available, so that I always had the higher quality product. That, that's the current system. But you've, you've, ca- you've capped. What you're saying is I should sabotage. <laughs> so when you're hiring that person to do no work, yeah. you have sabotaged the entire economy for your own gains. <laughs> All of society but now what, has less isn't it up good. To that other and you're person, trying, oh, though? this was an ethical thing to do. I just paid someone to do nothing. So one person was pretty hungry tonight because not enough food got I didn't got pay grow. them to do nothing. I didn't pay them to do nothing. I paid them to be around when I need them for my product. And I've increased the quality and consistency of my product for my customer base. That's what I feel like this I've done. an entire conversation about marginal utility. Yes. We've not spoken about marginal utility. Can you explain it real quick? I, no, I think that's the concept. It's yeah. like, I can, uh, it takes me, two people are going out and we're catching rats every day. Um, and in a course of a day, we can catch uh five rats but every day we eat five rats right if i go to the other person i say hey bro look i'm gonna make some rat traps but it's gonna take me three days to make these rat traps and when i do this we're gonna be able to not just catch five rats we're gonna be able to catch 15 rats but i'm gonna be hungry for three days how about you keep going and um over the course of this you catch rats for me but by the time i get done we're going to be able to kill it and we're going to be able to sit around and drink pina coladas on the beach. But I need you to help me out for these three days. By spending that time, um, by maybe eating fewer rats over a course of days, maybe eating a four of the five that you usually eat, to pay the other guy to uh, to do something or to build those rat those traps or giving up something for the purpose of creating efficiency, you're going to have... The ability to be better off and catch more rats in the future you're giving up something and uh, this is a terrible analogy and I'm, i've totally slaughtered it but nuts and bolts is no, that, that makes sense no, i mean okay so 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 yeah i mean this is all exactly that, true with my system you're still you're just as an individual making good deals for you and you're not under a permanent employment contract like that's a very short-term thing when the contract when the rat things are done it's over Sure. So th- not an, an this this concept exists with the two workers that we just discussed, or the worker that's being hired to to wait until there's a need for it. Th- there is a marginal utility to keep them on staff doing nothing for the period of time where there is no work to ensure consistency with your product. Why? It's just a different kind of marginal utility. You, the utility that you're getting there is consistency and the availability of the worker as opposed to rats. And it just so happens that both people like that arrangement and when should be... When does this guy get paid? So just but bear with me. This is a matter of sovereignty as well because the individual gets to decide who, who's sitting around for half the day, right? Waiting for to be called up to make whatever he makes really, really well. But that person gets to decide whether they want to take that job. They shouldn't be beholden to some other random person they don't know going hungry because they're not being utilized effectively when do There's they get individual... paid for this work Wait, I, th- beginning I or the matters. end Begin- no it does matter when beginning or at the end uh, so let's let's just explain to me why it matters why 
when they get paid. Because if it's at the beginning and you don't have a state, you can just take the money and run. You know? I think that's an important factor, is that there's still not a man with a gun that can enforce a contract. So now we're talking about uh, how that is enforced? I don't know. I think that, that what you're describing is a pointless exercise that only doesn't exist in a, in let, a practical sense outside of the outside of our let, current economy. Let, let, let me throw out a situation where it makes sense to pay someone for their time to sit in the office doing nothing, just working for someone. The situation is when the employer does not know when a need is going to arise. And they want a person to be sitting at their desk ready to work on something whenever that thing does arise. And they're, they're willing to pay that person to sit at their desk doing nothing for eight hours a day, even if nothing arises. I will cut your – I will have, beat you because I will not pay someone to sit around and do no work. My margins are lower. The markets handle yeah, everything. But, but, someone else will, but someone else wants to pay someone to do that. What do you mean? Right? No, no, no. The person who is smart and says, I don't need to pay an employee to do no work will ultimately have a cheaper product for the exact same quality. And what if what if it's a worse product and the fallout from something that goes wrong is far greater because they did not have somebody on board? They did not have somebody wait. Scenario. You work in a nuclear reactor plant and you have a, you have someone on a full hire that is that specializes in managing in rod overheating disasters but that's what she said rod overheating <laughs> yes <laughs> um but they specialize specifically in when the nuclear reactor goes awry and they don't do much else other than like a couple of checks or something i started this with this commentary that there will always be prostitutes there will always be people that choose to do these stupid obscure examples you're thinking of true. but at the same time if i can just you should keep. You should make something real, and you should be able to keep it. You shouldn't be, need to get into a servant relationship where someone else is in control of how. Less, I think it will be less likely. likely. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that it will continue to decrease heavily as you can segment and kind of individualize the work that's going on. I'm fine with the future where, like, if you are an employee. People just can spit on you. That's how much of a low life you are. That's how much of a fucking bum you are. Go follow your dreams, you piece of shit. Jared wants to pay you to just sit here in case he needs you. Do you feel like a good, you know, like a good little boy getting this payment by sitting in a chair? You know, you know weirdly, I'm I'm on the side of of Dave secretly in this discussion, but just because I think. We're in this world where people think they need way more than they actually need. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like, like to swing in that extreme before it came back. Before it, it came back to a normal place, I feel like we need like a slap in the face in that way of like like heavy independence. Um, but I think naturally, though, people will just go for easier agreements that might end up being longer term. My version years. of the free market. But Dave is saying that that's evil. David saying is like that's that's the source of the evil. evil whenever you, for the person who's whenever whenever anyone agrees to like sign your contract to work for you, that's where the devil is. Yeah, you're, when, signing, we, yourself we, over. you're signing yourself over to you're the devil. Yeah, <laughs> I think corporations are just or businesses are just uh, 
are exactly like a society or our tribes. We have evolved to, to live in a hierarchical society. And that's just a copy of that in a capitalist function. You know, if you're growing out in the hunter-gatherer, finding the meat. around specific ideas or specific Ideas actions. and needs. And if it's very basic, oh, you have a leader, probably is going to be the hunter. Because what do you need first? You need food and water. So you go kill the meat. That's higher risk, you know, to the CEO analogy. And then he probably got a bigger cut of the, of the, of the meat because he was taking the risk. And then it's trickling down. And I think that's kind of in our nature. So while I, I agree that could be uh, a very beneficial option for people to have uh, to only be paid for that work in very discrete periods of time and then be able to keep it all, it goes against our nature to a degree uh, that I don't think very many people would pursue that. So we are at the two hour and 15 minute mark. And this has been a healthy conversation. We've settled a lot of things. Yeah. We have we have resolved a lot. I think we need yeah. to go around the table. Final thoughts. Keep it to less than fifteen seconds per person. Closing statements. Um, and let's uh, go. Go. Can uh, I? Do you want to no, go first? Go, yeah. go first. Yeah. Go ahead. Go I'll, I'll go first. My my vision of a free market is where people where suddenly one week I'm driving around Raleigh, everybody's got grass growing in their yard. The next week everybody's growing avocados because the avocado cri- price just went through the roof and everybody knows that the, if i only want to work water grow man but this is the theory <laughs> that people will rotate it's analogies, it's analogies. they will immediately rotate to the best work they could be doing they will get into these stupid long-term contracts they'll immediately regret it regret it like the first time someone decides to be a prostitute if they do get into one of these contracts that wasn't worth it that's what i'm hoping for and then we just do we rotate work quickly Work gets done fast. You know, I'm going to, if I grow avocados, I only have to work 30 minutes a week this week. That's, that's the sort of super efficient work is a complete fiction. We don't need to be doing it all the time. Almost a complete fiction. I'd like to begin with my 15 seconds to advocate for a longer work week. <laughs> longer term <laughs> contracts. Um, More contracts. In <laughs> and a decrease in wages. That's my platform. Jerome can make it happen. Jerome has connections with evil men in high places. <laughs> in, low, in low, low places. Low, low lives in high places. <laughs> um, I think I said all I needed to say in this one. Just, uh, just chill in the crypto economy. Listen to the crypto economy. Uh, one thing along these lines is I think there's a trade-off between self-sufficiency and division of labor, which I think is interesting. Um, the more self-sufficient you are, that means the more you can provide like a variety of things. That means the less you specify. The more you specify and do this division of labor stuff, the more dependent you are, you are on the rest of the economy. So there's like a weird relationship there with self-sufficiency and division of labor. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. Um, also I want my slogan to take off Bitcoin. It's just money. And I don't know how to make that take off, but this is such a great sentence. Bitcoin. It's just money. With all the meanings of the word just, like it's only money and it's justice money and like all that stuff. So um, promote that. We definitely need t-shirts. 
I think we can sell that at a convention for Justice sure. Money. I got nothing on economics, but I uh, just want to remind you that we're all going to die someday. So <laughs> to steal two phrases from Chris D'Elia and Brody Stevens, uh, life rips. So enjoy it. Life rips. Thanks for listening. Uh, see you next week. <laughs>